Mark chapter 9. This is a long passage from verse 14 to verse 29. You can't split it up because it's one story. And it's written in such a way that we have to stay in the story. Given to us in such a way that it, I want you to not, I want you to try real hard to stay in the story today. Join me there, verse 14. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, and he's foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how, how, long has he, how long has this been happening to him? He answered from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. And after crying out, convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. In the epilogue. Epilogue. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, what healings, what hope, what restoration, what new joy, what saving, what cleansing, what forgiving, what needs to happen here today is beyond me. But we trust that your spirit is present, that your word is real, and I ask you, Lord, 
to go beyond our frailties and help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Thanksgiving is an unusual holiday. Thanksgiving is an unusually American holiday. Thanksgiving is an unusually Christian holiday because by the very virtue of the name Thanksgiving, you've got to have somebody you've given thanks to. And presumptuously, that is God. Thanksgiving is an unusual holiday because it falls right in the middle of the week every year, right, right on a Thursday. It upsets the weekly routine. If you're like me, you like a routine. Many of us have Wednesday off, so if you have Wednesday off, you have Thursday, then you have Friday, and you lose track of what day it is. Thanksgiving is unusual. It is the day when you are, you are intentionally, on purpose, overeating to the degree that many of you are taking pictures of what you're overeating, putting them on social media, look how overeating I am. When the holiday is over, we come down off that joyful food mountain. We come down off mountain. We got to go back to work and we got to go back to school. Back to life. We come down off the mountain and go back down into the valley. That's just what we see happening in this passage. The sons of thunder, James and John, along with Peter, had followed Jesus up the mountain, and there on the mountaintop, they had an unusual. Something happened. They witnessed the glorious revelation of the exalted Jesus. We know it as the transfiguration. Basically, that word means he was changed in front of them. Now they're coming down, where we picked up the story, if you hadn't been here, they're coming down the mountain from that. They make this, make this long walk down the mountain. They're talking about all that happened on the mountain. They get down to the bottom of the mountain. It's back to the grind. It's back to arguing. It's back to crowds. It's back to accusers. It's back to the scribes. It's back to demand. It's back to demons. It's back to hurt people. Back to need. It's not unlike what many of you will go back to tomorrow. You wouldn't choose it. Now, you wouldn't choose it. I wouldn't choose. You wouldn't choose the valley that you're in. You would not have chosen it. But here you are. And I think this story gives us some sobering hope on how we can live in the valley with joy. I'll say it like this. Jesus, what does this passage point to? Jesus is Lord, especially in the valley. Let's go back to the story now. Let's go back here like we've been doing for the last several months. We'll go back to the story. And this story is different than, than other stories Mark tells Matthew and Luke have this same story as the synoptic gospels almost always do, 
but Mark does something. Mark is the shortest gospel, but Mark takes this story and tells it in a longer fashion than any of the other writers do. In fact, the way he has it written here, even with his economy of language, Mark gives twice the number of words and information and detail than the other gospel writers do. That's why I think it's important for you and I to keep our head down on the story, to stay in it. It's not so important what I say today by way of sermon. It's important what you see in God's Word. Join me there. Let's walk through it. Verse 14. When they came to the disciples, when they, that is, James and John and Peter, they're coming down the mountain with Jesus, when they came to the other nine disciples that had been left at the bottom of the mountain, when they came there, they saw that the disciples were not by themselves, another crowd. There's a crowd that's gathering around. There's something happening. There's lots of activity. They get up closer to the crowd, and they see some of the scribes are there. What are the scribes doing there? They, they come from Jerusalem. The scribes are the, the ones that make sure everybody follows the law. They've written the Torah. They are going to be the accusers. They are there getting evidence. There's something that has happened that has created an argument in verse 14. They're arguing. The scribes are arguing with the nine disciples. Something has happened. Mark takes our attention off of that in verse 15. 15 to tell us, okay, what happened when, when the crowds didn't see Jesus, verse 15, Jesus and the three disciples are walking up, verse 15, immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, they were greatly amazed. With that. What are they amazed at? Some have said Jesus coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration was similar to Moses coming down off uh, Mount Sinai and his face glowing. Some would say that Jesus had this some leftover from the transfiguration. I think that's really far stretch. I think that, I think the presence of Jesus amazed people. Verse 15, they, they're amazed and they greet him. Jesus always taking care of his own. Verse 16, he asked them, what are you arguing? I think he's talking to the scribes. What are you arguing about with them? Here's what we don't know. We're going to find out in just a moment. The story's going to open up for us, but let me telegraph it a little bit. There's a man who's brought his son who's possessed by a demon. He brought that boy to be healed by Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. The disciples who had been given the power to cast out demons in Mark chapter 6, they were unable to cast this one out, and now the scribes are using that to provoke. They're saying it's a fake. You're fake. They're having an argument. Jesus now is asking, verse 16, what are y'all arguing about? And as he asked the question, verse 17, now center stage comes the dad and his son. Verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher. Remember Peter had called him rabbi up on the mountain, teacher. I brought my son to you. You were gone. I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Not only that, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. Can you imagine how terrible it is? Here's this, you might call it an, an epileptic seizure, except that it is a demon that's given it to him to the degree it's throwing him on the ground. He can't speak. We're going to find out in a minute. He can't hear. 
I brought my son to your disciples looking for you. I thought they could do it, but they were not able to. There's an exasperation in verse 19. Look at Jesus longing to be with his father. Verse 19, he answered them, oh, faithless. He's talking about the disciples, his disciples. Not the man, he's not rebuking the man. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear? Bring the boy. Verse 19, bring him to me. Verse 20, demons cannot be, they will not be they can't stand the holiness of Jesus. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him when the Spirit saw Jesus. Immediately it convulsed the boy. So now the boy is shaking uncontrollably. Falls on the ground, he's rolling around. He's foaming at the mouth. If you take the other verses, he's grinding his teeth, he's rigid. All of that is happening. Listen to the compassion. Listen to the compassion of Jesus. He turns to the Father. Verse 21, Jesus asked him, How long has this been going on? The Father says, this, I can't remember when it started. It's all the way back, back when it started crawling. I guess his childhood, from his childhood. And we can't do it, we can't go anywhere. It's often. Look how it's written. It's often. That's not scheduled. It happens. We don't even know when it's going to happen. We're in a gathering. We can't go to the synagogue. We can't be with family. We don't know when he's going to be overcome. So it's often that it happens. You cast him into the fire. His mom's cooking it. The, the devil gets him and throws him in a fire. Or if we're walking by the Sea of Galilee or on the River Jordan into the water. You see the word water? In Greek, it's actually plural, waters. It's a river or a lake or a pond, and he'll go way out in the water, and I'll have to wade out and get him. Can't speak, he can't hear. Then all of that's shaking. It's more than we can bear. He's trying to destroy. I get the sense he's trying to destroy his body. What does Satan do? He seeks to still kill, destroy. What is he prowling around doing, looking for someone to devour? So the father asked, if you can if you have compassion on, if you can help us, if you can help us, because your disciples couldn't, and my faith is shaken, if you can help us. Jesus, what a great... I don't think this is a hard rebuke in verse 23. I don't think this is an arrogant statement because Jesus is not arrogant. He's humble and kind. I think, he's, I think he, it's a gentle rebuke. I think he's bringing the Father's faith back. If you can, then, then the lesson. All things are possible. All things are possible with him who believes. And the father hears this, verse 24, and the father immediately says, I agree with you. I, I do believe. I need your help in my belief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Verse 25, the crowd sees something going on over there. They start coming toward Jesus. Jesus does not have any desire to make a spectacle out of people's lives. He sees the crowd coming. He knows that if they see this, they're going to want to try to make him king. So verse 25 says he 
he goes ahead and he rebukes. This is a rebuke unlike any other rebuke in the entire Bible you see out of the mouth of Jesus. He commands the unclean spirit to come out and then he adds an addendum. Come out and don't ever come back. Don't you want to say that sometimes? Come out and don't ever come back. Jesus gives this confidence to the father. He rebukes that demon and that boy. Come out of him. Don't ever come back. And when that happens, verse 26, there's this last convulsing, crying and convulsing. Satan understands his time is limited. And as the time grows near, he will become more evil and more hateful. He hears that he's got to come out. And so he has one last terrible episode. It's so terrible in the passage. The boy was like a corpse. It's verse 26. The boy is like a corpse. So the people are standing around. They're going, is he, I, think he, I think he's dead. I think, he killed, I think he's dead. Verse 27, look at the structure. Verse 27, look at the structure. This is you. This is what happened to me. Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Mark then backs us away. Verse 28 and 29 are sort of the epilogue. You have a story. If you're reading a book, you get to the end of the book, and then you have some explanation, filling in some gaps. So here's the lesson in verse 28. When he had entered the house, <clears throat> we don't know whose house it is. We're not told. Mark gives us all this detail. It didn't tell us whose house it is. When he entered the house, <clears throat> his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we? We received the power to do that. We even celebrated the power to cast demons out. That's Mark chapter 6. Why this time? Why? What happened? Verse 29 is the lesson. This is where all of this has been going. Here's the lesson. This kind which, as a side note, this kind would indicate there are different kinds. Like if there's an archangel, there's a ruling angel, there would be angels under that. This kind of demon, this is especially evil. How do you combat it? Verse 29, this kind only comes out through prayer. Okay. Now, we've got the story. Let's go back. What are the, in principial form, what are some things? that we can walk out of here with today based on this story. What does this teach us? I'd like to offer up a couple of them. <clears throat> Here's the first one. Number one, it's only, it's only going to get more confusing. The world we live in is only going to get more confusing. When you read verse 14 and 15 and 16, they come down off this great retreat, down into this melee, this valley, and look at the people. Just look at the characters that are there. You have the three disciples that were with Jesus. You have the nine disciples that were left there on the ground. You have the scribes that are making these accusations. You have the crowd of spectators. You have a father and presumably a mother worried about the son. You have a boy that is possessed by a demon. He can't speak. He can't hear. He is bodily being tortured. You have Satan seeking to destroy you, you, when you read this, you have nothing but chaos. And that's what we walk into. Feels like a chaotic world. So what are you going to do? I, 
couple of things that I think is going to be necessary. The first one is you, me and you got to find a way to get closer, get closer to Christ, closer to Christ. If you're going to actually call yourself a Christian, let's find the right avenues to make sure you are developing as a man of God or a woman of God, a young man of God, a young woman of God. What are you doing so that you are growing strong in your faith? The other is to, to trust the gospel. We say we believe the gospel, that Jesus lived perfectly, died on the cross, God raised him from the dead, he ascended into heaven. What does that do for you? It's got to be more than just you raise your hand. It's even got to be more than as glorious as it is to follow through with baptism. What does that symbolize? The transformation, the transformative power of the gospel. We have to stake our lives on the gospel. Something else. How are you going to grow? <clears throat> We've got five or six Sundays left in this year. We're coming to 2024. I think in this day and time, it is important for Christians to make a plan on how you are going to develop as a woman of God or a man of God in this coming year. To create a plan how you are going to press yourself into disciplines, growing, a plan to read the Bible, what books you're going to read, how you're going to grow theologically, how you're going to, how you're going to grow spiritually, how you're going to grow doctrinally. I'll give you something else. It's good for us to get serious about our own own sin, our own sin. We can see everybody else's. That's much more fun. You can point. But your own sin, what, what are the things that you are tripped up by? Where are you struggling? What are you not getting victory over? What's keeping you from developing as a believer? Your own sin. Why? Because it's only going to get worse. Let me give you something. I'll take another step into it. Here's the second principle I think you can find out of here. That is, it's only... It's only going to get more evil. I mean, that's, that's what we're introduced to here in verse 17 and 18, is that this, this boy, his ailment is, although it looks like epilepsy, when you read it, it sounds a lot like epilepsy. What it is, is he is possessed by a demon. And you get down to verse 20 and 21 and 22, then you see that that's what this demon is seeking to hurt the boy. This is not just psychological. This is something his, his teeth grind, his muscles twitch, he foams at the mouth, he's thrown into the fire, he's thrown in the water. Its desire is hurt. So what do we do with that? One of the things that I would like to just sort of reintroduce is that we should demythologize Satan. Demythologize. I think in this day and time, we have in our modern minds, we have pressed aside the actual, real being of Satan. That evil is not just a force, it is a person. And that person's desire, according to the Bible, is to steal, to kill, to destroy, walking around looking for someone to devour, and he had this boy. I think we need to demythologize. I think we need to, uh, here's another consideration. I think we need to be more discerning as Christians. I think we need to be more discerning. If you're a parent, I think you need to be more discerning. If you are a young man or woman, to think clearly, more clearly than you are right now, be discerning what you let in. 
what your eyes pass across, what you read, what you watch, who you are with, what you listen to. What are the videos on TikTok that you might let come across your mind? I think that is a wormhole for Satan to get in. I think Christians ought to be more discerning. Uh, something else. I think we need to be more <clears throat> aware of the imago Dei, the image of God. I think, I think you should be more aware of the image of God. When I say the image of God, I mean in you. It's good for you to be reminded, hey, you are created in the image of God. That means you, are, you have worth and dignity and people are to respect you because of that. Whether you're a Christian or not, you should know that's who you are, created in the image of God. And not only that, we look at other people, they are created in the image of God. Now, we, the gospel tells us the image of God has been disfigured by sin. That sin has separated us from God. The gospel says that God has come to rescue through Christ who lived as no human ever has, died on the cross to take the wrath away. God raised him from the dead. And if you trust he did that on your behalf, you're saved. It's true. That's how you're saved. But the image of God is in everyone. The Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, this is, this is why we have such, this is why we have such disdain for any sort of mutilation of the body. This is, this is where we break down with the transgender movement because any movement to hurt the body is satanic, you see. Satan's desire here was not just to hurt that boy's mind and his heart, his body. So we say there's a better way. There's, God created you in his image and what, what he did was created good. And that image is restored through faith in Christ. It's good for us to be more aware of the image of God. Why? Because it's only going to get more evil. Let me give you a third consideration. It's, it's only going to get more broken more broken, more broken. This passage is filled with broken people. From the very beginning, when they come down off the mountain, down into where the valley is, and those nine disciples, they are there with a crowd. There are broken people. Verse 15, we meet the scribes. Those scribes are broken in their legalism because they think they're doing so good. That's brokenness. You're relying on yourself and you think you're a pretty good person. That's just brokenness. We get to verse 18 and 19, we meet the nine disciples. They're broken because their faith is broken. They tried to heal this boy. They couldn't do it. They're broken. The, the, the subject of the entire story is the father and his son, presumably the wife. That family is broken. This boy that they love, he obviously loves his son. Certainly mom does. All his life, he can't hear, he can't speak. This demon's trying to kill him. You imagine living like that? Or the little boy, think about the boy. He can't communicate, can't hear, can't talk. He's being physically tortured. And this story is here to show us this brokenness, this brokenness. And Jesus comes in this brokenness to, to show us the sufficiency of the gospel, the, the conversation that goes on when the father says, if you can help us, and when Jesus says, if I can, as if to say, there's unlimited power here. Anything, it's what we've been singing all morning, anything is possible. 
This story reminds us of the sufficiency of the gospel. When I say sufficiency, I mean it has the power to save, the power to save you, the, the power to forgive you, the power to restore you, the, the power to rebuild your life, the, the power to heal you. It's the power of the gospel, the power to, to reconcile family members, to reconcile you to God, the, the power to sustain you. This story is reminding us of the great power of Jesus. Why? Because it's only, we live in a world that it's only going to get more broken, more broken. Let me give you a fourth consideration. It's all a test of faith. Everything. It's all a test of faith. What you're in, it's a test of faith. When you look at the disciples, when, when the man brings his son to the disciples, he's looking for Jesus, he's not here. The disciples, verse 18 and 19, they can't cast out the demon. It is a test of their faith. They failed that test, and that man who thought Jesus could heal, but he wasn't here, his disciples couldn't, and so now we get to this conversation, and he's asking, if you can. I thought you could, Saw that the disciples couldn't, so now I'm not sure. By the way, just, just as, an aside, as an aside, how we respond in faith reflects on our king. How we respond to the crisis in, of our faith reflects on the king. But the, the whole point of this is not the, the strength of faith. The whole point is the object of faith. What is the object of faith? Let me show it to you in verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 and 23, you have one of the most powerful and poignant exchanges between Jesus and another person in the entire New Testament. Let me show it to you, verse 22 and 23. The man says, it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes Immediately the father and the child cried out, the father of the child cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Let's go through the interchange. If you can, the man says, and Jesus says, if I can. What do you mean if? God has the power to do anything. It's not the amount of faith that is so important. Please don't go around saying, if you just have enough faith. That's putting all the weight on you. That is a works salvation. If you can just come up with enough faith, it is not the amount of faith that is so important. It is the object of faith. Here's what I mean. The Bible teaches that if you have faith like a mustard seed, small, that faith like a mustard seed moves mountains. Not because that faith is so big. No, it's because that faith is in the sovereign Lord who can do anything. That's why faith is strong. And the man's response to Jesus in verse 24 is, is one, of my most, one of my most favorite responses. It's, it's the same time a statement and a request. So the statement, I believe. This, this needs to be our prayer. I believe than the request, help my unbelief. We should write that, write that down somewhere. It's a recognition 
that humanly speaking, we are weak, that only by the power of God will we have sufficient faith to put and ask God to do what is unlimited. Faith does not put a limit on what God can do. So, what do we learn so far? It's only going to get worse, more confusing. It's only going to get more evil. It's only going to get more broken. All of this is a test of faith. Let's see if we can bring it back up to something help, helpful and hopeful. Two final points. Number five, it's all a setup for victory. Go to the miracle, verse 25, 26, and 27. That sounds a little bit like a prosperity preacher. I don't mean for it to, but all of it. It's all a setup for this victorious, you see, this, this picture of, of God saving. Let me show you the miracle, <clears throat> verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him, never come back again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. Here's the picture, verse 27. Sounds just like what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. It's a, it's a foreshadowing. It's what God did for us in Christ when he saved us. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do when he finally breaks Satan's power. In an irreversible sense, when he does that through his life and death and resurrection. Here is a foreshadowing of the gospel. How are we saved when God reaches down in Christ, pulls us up from the dead, and saves us through what Jesus has done on the cross? It, it's a setup for victory. I'll give you one last one. The epilogue. What is the... What's the backstory? What's the end? Here's the sixth point. It's a simple reminder that you're not praying enough. That's what this story is. That's where all of it is headed to the very end. The lesson is at the very end, at the epilogue. So the story is in verse 28 and 29, once the, the boy's healed and presumably the family goes off, the crowds disperse, that evening they're in somebody's house and they have a private session, and the disciples finally say in verse 28, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus tells them in verse 29, this kind, something you didn't do, this kind cannot be cast out except by prayer. What is prayer? What is, what, what is prayer? Prayer is the full reliance Prayer is the full reliance on the power of God. Prayer is the full reliance on the unlimited power of God. What are the four steps of prayer? The first one is believing. That's what this text is. is believing that he is able. Believing that God is able. Is he able? If you can, if I can, believing he is able. That's the first step, to believe that he can do it. The second step is asking actually asking God to move. We ask God to do something on behalf of someone else or for ourselves. A good rule of thumb to help you ask God is the question, what if God only gave you the things that you ask for? Learn to ask 
Believing, asking. The, the, the third step in praying is to trust. Trust. Here, here's what I'm asking you to trust. Trust that a good and sovereign God will do everything well and he will do everything according to his perfect will and plan and timing to trust. And then the fourth step in prayer that's helped me is to accept. Accept that all of the yeses and amens find their answer in Christ. That, that Christ is my portion, that Christ is my hope, that Christ is my strength and joy, that Christ is the holder of your future, that Christ is the cleanser of your past, that you can start this week knowing Jesus is Lord, especially in the valley. Your heads bowed this morning. We'll go to the Lord in a time of commitment and prayer. Join me in prayer. We're going to sing one last song this morning. If you'd like to come forward and have a pastor pray with you, if you'd like just to pray, if you want to bring a friend and pray, if you want to ask God to help you, to strengthen you, maybe you want to intercede on someone's behalf. It's the Lord's day. You're with God's people. This is what we do on Sundays, pray. We would invite you to come forward and pray if you'd like to do that. If you're more comfortable with talking to a pastor after church, our pastors will be in the lobby talking to church members and friends. We will not feel like you're interrupting if you just come up and talk to one of us. We'd invite that. If today you heard the gospel and you thought, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Today you heard that Jesus died, was raised from the dead on behalf of sinners. You understand you're a sinner and you want that to be for you. We want to talk to you about what it means to give your life to Christ, to become a Christian today. If you'd like to talk to one of us, we're glad to talk to you here, down front, or, or out in the lobby after church. Father, thank you for the gospel that is so good, for your healing power. Thank you for this story, for the compassion of Christ. Thank you for the admonition to pray. Lord, help us to become people of prayer. Thank you for the Lord's day, for time together with the family of God. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing together?